Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. All right, well, good morning, everyone. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. Thank you for joining us and for getting up and moving a little bit during the worship so we can bring some heat to the room. Um, as mentioned, as I just mentioned, there are devotional guides for you. They're back by the offering box at the Connect Center, so you can grab one on your way out. We would love for you to join us. Um, as Pastor Eric mentioned, we, there are journaling Bibles as well, so if you want to grab one of those, don't be shy. You can grab that. Now, and that's for our series in Ecclesiastes. So let's pray, and we're going to jump right into what we have in front of us. Father, we thank you for the chance to be together. We thank you that we have a new year in front of us, and that, that we know that going into this year, there, there are things that we cannot predict now that are going to come through. That there will be challenges that we don't know are coming, that there are opportunities that we, that we couldn't possibly know are going to cross our paths that we know that in all of this, there are going to be joys, there are going to be sorrows, there are going to be ups and downs, and that can be anxiety-inducing, it can be hope-filled. And so we pray today that as we open your word and begin this new series and this new year as a church, as we continue to try to discern what it is that you want to do in us and through us as individuals and as a people, we pray that you would help us to be able to see what is firm and fixed and steady that we can cling to versus the things that are passing by. And so we lift this time to you, our hearts to you, this year ahead to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, it is a new year, and we are starting a new series at Redemption Hill. It's the first Sunday of of 2024, um, and it's going to be an interesting one here in D.C., Um, We are headed into an election year, which always feels a little bit perilous and uncertain. And we have the two-year and four-year cycles that simultaneously get exhausting and seem to run together as one big cycle. But more than just politics, my sense as your pastor is that, that most of us, especially after the last few years, are really looking ahead with a a little bit of just uncertainty, hoping there's something that we can solid, that we can cling to, that we can grasp as we look ahead. And I think that's definitely true in our city. People are looking for something solid, something sure. In the last several years, so many have had what they thought was solid crumble in their hands and slide through like sand. And so we live in a place that we can see the heights of human achievement and the depths of human despair every single day just on our walk to the metro. And we can see clearly that joy and happiness is not a sure thing based just on achievement and wealth. Because we can walk around and see some of the most high-achieving and wealthy people who are miserable. How do we make sense of it all? That brings us to the book of Ecclesiastes. I love the book of Ecclesiastes 
Um, I don't know that there could be a better book of the Bible to address our city at this time. It's a book that, um, that you may be familiar with a little bit, but if you are, it's probably just the line, like every, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, or vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, everything is meaningless under the sun. And so it's not, it's, it feels like a pretty depressing book to start off in January on a cold day when it just rained at 38 degrees for 14 hours yesterday. Um, and it is. <laughs> but my hope is that this will but we'll do a couple of things. That as we walk through, that Ecclesiastes will help those of you who are, have been followers of Jesus for a long time to be able to, be able to come to greater firmness and understanding of how to look at the good things, the good gifts of God in the world around us and see them for what they are, but be able to understand what is most solid that you cling to. And that for all of us, we would see that what Ecclesiastes does is it shows us the extent, the, like the, the logical push and the furthest extent of every human pursuit. Everything we could possibly achieve, everything we could accomplish, everything we could pursue in this life. And it shows us and explores, does this bring satisfaction and joy and purpose? These are the big questions of life. In Moby Dick, uh, Herman Melville, who um, I pulled up a picture of him just this morning, and he looks the most hipster hipster that ever hipstered, um, expecting him to come riding by on a fixie. And so Melville said, the true, in Moby Dick, one of his characters said, the truest of all books is Ecclesiastes. In Thomas Wolfe's uh, pretty well-known American novel, You Can't Go Home Again, one of his characters said, Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I have ever known, the noblest, the wisest, the most powerful expression of humanity's life on earth, the highest flower of eloquence and truth. And so this brings us to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'm going to read the first chapter today. You can follow along in your journaling Bible that you picked up or on the screen or as I read, if you want to go pick one up, go for it. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to to be among those who come after I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. 
What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that is a very depressing start to our series. <laughs> you read a passage like this, and you have to wonder, like, why is this in the Bible at all? It doesn't seem to provide hope for us. It provides a lot of questions, but not a lot of answers. That doesn't feel like a lot of sections of Scripture that, that provide us the answers and firm foundations that we can cling to of God's revelation. It doesn't even feel necessarily like a biblical worldview, right? That if you look at this and he says everything's meaningless, when most of Scripture is trying to infuse meaning into life, where we learn from the very beginning that we were created in God's image and likeness and given a commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and cultivate God's good creation. And so in all this human dignity and worth that is built up through Scripture, you have to wonder, even reading this first chapter, like, is this even orthodox? Where is the hope? Where is the understanding of God's character? Where is identification of sin and the call to repentance or a transcendent worship of our creator? Well, we need to step back a little bit and come to understand this book if the opening is going to make any sense to us. Verse 1 introduces the whole book to us. These are the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Verses 2 to 11 in this chapter introduce us to the teachings of this preacher. So it's kind of a summary statement in this, in this first chapter that shows us the kind of things he taught. And then in verse 12, we begin the statements of this preacher. And so as we walk into Ecclesiastes over the coming weeks, there are four major sections that we'll walk through. The first is these first two chapters show us, ultimately, you come to a conclusion that life is a gift from God, but it shows us life under the sun. The second shows us a look at God's design for the world. How does this world function? How does it work? The third, as we go from chapters 6 through 8, it shows us the sovereignty of God's plan and the, whether you want to say embracing and applying God's plan or resigning yourself to it, depends on how you read the section. And the fourth shows us Mystery in hidden, or mystery, sorry, mystery in joy and suffering, showing us that God has hidden wisdom, and that there is a mystery for how we can have joy in suffering. And so these are the four major sections that you walk through, and having that in mind even helps us to be able to understand and interpret the sections that we're in. <clears throat> so who is this preacher that gets identified? Well, we need to understand a little bit about wisdom in poetic literature in the Bible, too. Because if we read poetic literature wrong, like there's different genre in Scripture. Just as we know there's different genre in life now. When we read different things, we read it in different contexts. If you pick up Harry Potter, you read Harry Potter differently than you do, hopefully, um, a history book on, I don't know, pick your history topic. Because we, we understand the difference between fiction and nonfiction. In one, we can allow our imaginations to run and create this imaginary world. In the other, we're, we're trying to read what we believe to be an accurate account of facts of what has happened in life and history. 
Um, if, we, if we pick up a, an instruction manual, we understand that an instruction manual is going to read differently than a novel. Or if it's an instruction manual from Ikea, it does not read at all. And you just get lost and mad. And so, with, so we understand the difference in genre in our lives, but often when we come to scripture, we kind of throw those things out the window and, and have this kind of a literalistic approach at points rather than understanding, no, there's points that are narrative and we read narrative different than we read letters and letters are differently read than prophecy and apocalyptic literature. And so understanding those genres informs how we read it. And as we read poetic literature in scripture and wisdom within poetic literature, we need to understand that it captures the reality we face day to day in this world as a snapshot. And so it's, it's less concerned with propositional truth and more concerned with practical advice. Let me explain that. If you read the book of Proverbs, there'll be points where I would make the claim as a theologian, as your pastor, I would say scripture at no point contradicts itself. At no point does scripture stand against a claim that it makes. And that is one of the amazing things in in 66 books written across centuries by more than 40 authors is that there is no internal contradiction. And then you could take me to Proverbs 26 and read two verses back to back in four and five. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Or answer not a fool, sorry. <laughs> answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you can point to that and say, see, it contradicts itself. Well, that's a misreading of Proverbs. If you take either one of these verses and rip it from context and decide, you know what? In the Bible, it tells me to answer a fool according to his folly or, uh, or, um, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. And so therefore, anybody that's foolish that I ever encounter in my life, I have to stand up to so he understands that he's wrong. Well, you'd be missing half the advice. Where it also says, hey, you don't have to answer every fool because you'll become foolish. And you'll become the fool yourself. And so when we read Proverbs, these are snapshots of practical wisdom. They aren't sweeping truth claims, but it's applying knowledge practically. And so when we read this book of Ecclesiastes, it falls within this poetic literature that's sharing wisdom with us. Now, Kohelet introduces himself. That's the, the language here. Is that it's called the preacher in the ESV. <clears throat> And this different translations will call, use a different title, the preacher or, um, or some. It, it, but here, I don't love the preacher because I, don't, I think this guy actually would make a terrible preacher. <laughs> There's no hope. There's no good news here. But it, this, it's the Hebrew word koheleth. And I think it's best for us to understand that kind of in the terms of a philosophy professor. And so in Ecclesiastes, this philosophy professor, this preacher, will raise more questions than he will give us answers. He, will, he is wiser than any of us. He has lived more life than any of us. He has searched everything out and had means beyond what any of us have had. This is a, is a capturing of the meandering mind of a philosopher king. Now, we don't fully know who Kohelet is. It could be Solomon. We, don't, we just don't know for sure. It's certainly somebody like Solomon that's clearly in view. And dating this book is really difficult. I don't think it's ultimately that important. But throughout, there's a third-person voice as well that comes in every once in a while, and especially in the very last verses of the book, that comes in and has stuff to say about this preacher. 
about Kohelet. And so there's an aspect to this that Ecclesiastes shows us. It is a critique of human wisdom under the sun. And his conclusion is seen right here at the very beginning. That this preacher says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And so as we begin Ecclesiastes, that's where we begin. The big idea of chapter one is that everything is empty. Life is a vapor. And so he begins vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Now, vanity means, and we keep, this word, we can think about that as vanity, like you sit in front of the mirror all day, putting on, you know, looking at yourself. It's not that. This isn't narcissism. Vanity, could, vanity here has more of a feeling of emptiness. The, the language here, though, I think the best way to capture this language is a vapor, a mist. And so that's the theme for our whole series, that life is a vapor. That life is like a, like a mist that if you try to grab at it, there's nothing to actually grab onto. It's not, solid, it's not solid or liquid, it's gas. That right now, if you breathe out, it's not quite cold enough in the sanctuary that you'd see your breath. Um, but if you walk outside right now and breathe out, you would see your breath. And if you try to grab at your breath, it's something you can see, but your hands will pass right through it. That's the, the connotation here that Kohalath is giving us, saying, saying take a coffee cup and have, see the steam coming off of the coffee and try to grab at that steam. It's, it's nothing. It's here and it's gone. Nothing is as permanent as we want it to be. Now, we have no choice when we hear this. When, when it, the book of the, starts this way and somebody says, all right, here are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, a vapor. Everything is a vapor. It's a mist. It's empty. There is nothing here. Inside of us, there has to be something that goes like, hold on a second, that objects to that. Because we have to find some kind of meaning in our lives. There has to be something that gets us out of bed every day. There has to be something that keeps us going, that, that we find purpose in. But this professor is starting off by saying, that is utter nonsense. I have looked at it all. I've searched it all out. I have done everything, I've pursued everything, and it's all for naught. And so how do you explain the meaning of your life? That is the question that Ecclesiastes puts in front of every one of us that we're going to spend the next couple of months pursuing. What is your purpose here? Why does God continue to raise you to be awake every morning and give you life and breath and keep your heart beating? Why do you live and why do you exist? Why are you living in the place that you are? Why, has, why are you around the people you are? Why were you born into the family that you were born into? Why, why, what is the meaning of your life? And, and that, that uncertainty is at the core of everything for us. And so that's the exploration we have. Because this claim in Ecclesiastes is that under the sun, it's a vapor, a chasing after the wind. And some of you might say, well, I want to leave the world a better place when I die. And the professor would say to you, it's a vanity. It's a vapor. It's a mist. It's a chasing after the wind. So where do we turn? Well, Ecclesiastes will walk through our pursuits one by one and show them, take them to their absolute end point. And right at the top here in the chapter one, we see the Koheleth, this professor, address work, pleasure, reputation, and knowledge. So pretty sweeping arc of a summary statement here. 
So he begins by saying, our work is empty. Isn't this encouraging, church? Welcome to January 7th. Um, your resolutions are a vapor, uh, chasing after the wind. <laughs> so he ta- begins by talking about work. And I mean, how can this be? Like, as a church, we just, we just had a video that showed that like, we're in the middle of dwell and enduring and faithful presence, encouraging all of you to work for the good of our city. At Redemption Hill, we talk regularly about we, we exist to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, gospel-shaped community, and gospel-driven work for the good of this place. That all that we do that joins God in his good work of forming what is form shapeless and filling what is empty and cultivating the goodness of life and creation is valuable and, and important. And the professor says, well, look at nature itself. What do you gain by all your work? by all, all the work that you do under the sun. Generation comes and a generation and, and it goes and the earth remains forever. And look at the earth itself. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises again. The wind blows to the south and it goes all the way around to the north and around it goes the wind on its circuits and the wind returns. All the streams run into the sea, all drains lead to the ocean, he's saying. So that's Nemo was more philosophical than you realized. But the sea doesn't fill up. It returns back to the place where the streams started and they flow again. Everything is full of weariness. A man can't utter it. See, this world, if you just look at it, you can see that the cycles continue on. That we don't have, our work doesn't have the ultimate impact that we think it will. That that ultimately we are all much more replaceable than we like to think. And we see it all the time. Like there are, there are crises that happen when somebody dies or when somebody visible is disqualified from their position or steps down. Or if you are into professional sports, um, like I, I love football and I talk about it a lot and I only have this day to talk about it because my team didn't qualify for the playoffs. And we've been arguing as Bears fans about whether this is our quarterback all season and not enjoying watching the game because we are obsessed with it. But if somebody goes down in professional sports, it's the next player up, and it just keeps going and going and going. Life marches on. The sun rises every morning. It's a cruel reality that doesn't slow down for anybody. There are times when we can feel that, where we can feel that kind of just cyclical grind of life and wonder, like, can't I just slow down for a little bit? Have you ever felt that, where where you just wonder, like, I just wish I could just take a break for a little bit, but the days just keep coming and coming and coming, and you feel that weariness, but it doesn't slow down for anybody. And you never quite realize how replaceable you are until you leave a job. Have you had that experience? We spent four years um, in between, four years before we came to D.C., we were serving a church in Indianapolis, Indiana. I grew up in Chicago, but served a church in Indy for four years. And while we were there, Alyssa and I were were working primarily in youth ministry and did some things that were really fun and really unique in that ministry that actually formed kind of a foundation for what we do here at Redemption Hill and how we're built. And, um, And we saw the ministry grow and we saw teenagers coming to Jesus and getting baptized and and making professions of faith and being trained in the leadership. And it was, things were going great. 
And, um, and then we moved away and I just, we had this whole thing set up. Everything was documented, all this stuff, all these different structures and things and leaders that were bought in. And we had a ministry team of like 40 people that we were serving with. And, you know, then we moved away and I just kept waiting for that call to come of like, hey, Bill, what would you do about this? That call never came. They completely undid everything we did in four years and took a totally different direction. As so often happens, the pendulum swung to a guy that's very different, and they did a totally different approach to ministry, which is fine. But within three or four months, I realized, like, oh, the four years I had there feel like a mist, like a chasing after the wind. So if you say, well, I'll find meaning in my work. I will work hard, and my work ethic will make sure that this world is a better place when I die. The professor says to you, well, it's a mist. It's a chasing after the wind. Maybe you won't fall into the trap of of your work, though in D.C. that's a little hard to believe, but some of you have been here long enough that you're like, I am not obsessed with my work, and I will not ask people what they do is the second question. And so you think instead, some of you have gone full off of the work angle and gone full into the pursuit of pleasure and self-fulfillment. Said, I want to suck the marrow out of life. Well, the professor says to you, life is unendingly unsatisfying. This is what he says in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Your senses will never be satisfied. You will never be filled up. You will never travel enough so that you go, you know what? I've experienced enough travel in enough other places. I'm good. You'll never get to a point where you see enough beautiful things that you go, I don't really need to see another mountain. I don't really need to see another coastline. I never need to see anything beautiful again. You'll never get to a point if, as you, if you pursue these things as your end point, I should say, where you, where you will always find craving for more. You'll never be filled up. You can never hear enough. You can never, no matter how good a meal you eat, no matter how good a meal you cook, you're going to be hungry again. Like that's a discussion we have regularly where it's like you come to dinner time, and if any of you with kids especially experience this where you're like, do we need to feed them again today? Every day. There's a term that's used with opioid addicts called chasing the dragon. That the first high is something that can never be captured again. So somebody experiences that first high and gets addicted because they're chasing that first high, just hoping to recapture that feeling, that experience again, but nothing will ever measure up. And so you go deeper and deeper and deeper into your life being thrown away as a vapor. And we are all chasing the dragon in some way, in something, and it's exhausting. We have incredible world-class restaurants all around us in D.C., it's amazing how even that kind of experience can become taken for granted when you experience them over and over again. And so if you say, well, I'm going to pursue pleasure. I'm not, I know that work isn't going to do it, and life is short, and so I'm going to go and suck the marrow out of life and experience everything that I can and every pleasure. The professor says to you, well, that, that too is a vapor. It's a chasing after the wind. And so maybe you say, well, 
then I'll turn to my reputation. I want to do something that I'll be remembered. I want to make a name for myself because that means that something has been accomplished that will impact other people for good. And the professor says, well, we will all be forgotten. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. And if somebody says, see this thing that's new, it's been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. We have a, a sense of permanence and a myth of permanence in our world that everyone, especially in a town like this, we, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to have a legacy. And we have buildings and monuments in this place that preserve the legacy of great people and great thinkers and great achievers to the point that, do you, do you realize how many statues we have to people in D.C. That, that we have no idea who they are anymore? You ever do that? Do you ever see a statue and you're like, I wonder who that is, and go up and read it? And then the first thing that you do is like, well, I'm going to pull my phone and tap into the, the breadth of human knowledge to find out who this person even was. They were important enough to have a statue put in, in the nation's capital. You, you realize that how much the news cycles, cycles around people that are in positions of political power. Think about how many within the two houses of Congress you can't even name. Now, maybe some of you are like, well, I've memorized them all. Congratulations. You have 535 names that you will have to re-memorize every two years. And so even within Senate and House, there are so many that within their districts they're known, within certain spheres they're known, but can they even be named by general public? Think of how many presidents you can't name or at least don't know many details of their, of their position and their term other than being able to name the terms in order. Even those, you, even those you can name, you don't remember. You didn't know them. The truth is that the vast majority of us will be forgotten within a third generation. So you might say, I'll, well, I'll make my mark on this world. I'll make a name for myself and accomplish something great. And the professor says to you, it's a vapor a chasing after the wind. And so without work, without pleasure, without achievement and reputation, what are we left with? We turn to the pursuit of knowledge. If this world is so hopeless, then maybe we can at least gain a clearer understanding and ultimately find meaning by knowing a lot. This is a summary of our fair city. I think a lot about Acts 17 when Paul was in Athens and in the marketplace and, and it described the people in Athens. It says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Ooh. Welcome to Washington, D.C. How many conversations do we have that are along the lines of, and I'm not, I mean, I do the same thing where you think like it's, Hey, did you hear this? Did you read this article? Did you read this write-up? Did you hear this person's perspective? Did you see this and what happened and what this person tweeted? Did you, do you, under, you, know, did you see this angle? And we, we live the news cycle in this town. But that knowledge that we turn to and think that is going to bring us so much, I don't know, what purpose, really? It's all fleeting, too. Because the more we get obsessed with what is current and new, the more it's going to turn over. And within 24 hours, the cycle's moved on. 
The more knowledge and wisdom you have, the more you learn about this world, the more depressed you'll be. The more you'll understand the brokenness and depravity of this world. That's why the professor here says, what is crooked can't be made straight. What is lacking can't be counted. And so I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, which real humility might be low on this guy's scale. Great wisdom. I've surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge only increases sorrow. When we were first planting Redemption Hill Church, we moved here in 2010, and there was a, a man from uh, Cornerstone, our sending church, who had been, within a couple of months, I think within two months of moving here, he invited me to his retirement ceremony, which was at the officer's ballroom at Fort Belvoir overlooking the Potomac River, and I didn't realize who this guy had been, but it was like a who's who of our defense department. And he, I learned, had led... Um, the team that was like the lead on the nuclear disarmament of Ukraine. Kind of an accomplishment. And he spent the rest of his career in like anti-terrorism intelligence. And he had been before that, he had been an admiral, a rear admiral in the Navy. And so a pretty accomplished guy in those fields. And he and I would talk sometimes and I would ask him things that he could tell me or things from the past that he could now tell me. And, um, And talking to this guy, John, um, he knew things that I don't want to know about bad people with bad intentions in this world. He would tell me about how at night he couldn't go to sleep because he knew about things that the general public doesn't and should never know. His deep knowledge of the brokenness of this world only increased his sorrow over time. We live that reality now. Because we live now, and it's inescapable, we live in a globalized place where we are receiving news stories in rapid fire 24 hours a day from all over the world. And if you're part of Redemption Hill, this isn't the first time we've talked about this, but we do not, as human beings, have the capacity to experience sorrow and brokenness and pain and suffering at that rate. We can't handle the stuff that's happening in our own neighborhoods, our own blocks, our own families, our own lives, let alone knowing about natural disasters and earthquakes and wars and seeing images from across the world of human sorrow and suffering. The more we know, the more we learn, the more we turn to those things for our purpose, the more despair we will experience. This place is broken. And you can invest your whole life into changing it and come to the conclusion at the end, it's a vapor. It's a chasing after the wind. It's grasping at a mist. So where do we turn from here? Well, I want you to notice that there's something very important in what this philosopher, Koheleth, has said. And this has to guide us as we make it through Ecclesiastes. Otherwise, we're never going to make it through this series. If we, come through, if we come together every Sunday and we just stop here in each sermon, it's going to be rough. But I want you to notice that four times he used the expression, under the sun. 
It's unique to Ecclesiastes in our Bibles, but it occurs 29 times in this book. The worldview that is presented in Ecclesiastes doesn't allow, and especially in these first two chapters, doesn't allow Koheleth to take God into account. God is not transcendent and imminent here. He's saying this is the reality of life if all that exists is what we see under the sun. And so this is what shows us what it looks like if practically we live as atheists, if we are naturalists, believing that all that exists is only what can be observed in the natural world. If that is where, what you believe, is that, if that is what your life is built on, is that there is no God that brings us ultimate purpose, that this stuff in the Bible is just fairy tales about a sky fairy we turn to with our wishes, that, that it's all just made up and that this is real and we know it because we can touch it and that those are the things that we experience with our senses that we can, that we can establish as true, then we come to a point when it comes to meaning and purpose that these are the only conclusions you're left with. And I would argue this is the perspective of the majority of our city and it's the perspective in practical life, living of a high percentage of those who call themselves Christians. You can say good theology and functionally live as an atheist. You can come to church on a Sunday and go to community group on, you know, sometime during the week or do those things on occasion or not do those things, but still claim to be a Christian and understand the basics of Christian theology and, and the gospel and, and, and say those things and understand them cognitively, but then functionally live life under the sun as if there is no God that can break through and change circumstances, as if God isn't approachable and interested in your life and that all all you actually have is what you see under the sun, that there is no higher purpose, no higher meaning. If that's the way that you're living, then you will be left with the conclusion that everything is a vapor. It's a chasing after the wind. But there's good news for us. There's some things that Koheleth didn't have yet, but there are some things that he should have known at this point, especially if he was the one on the throne in Jerusalem that understood who the one true God is. And so we certainly need to learn from the preacher, but we also need to see beyond the preacher, and there must be more than what he has to offer. And so the ultimate point of Ecclesiastes is to poke at us, to prod us, to push us into uncomfortable space, to make us consider things that we otherwise won't consider in the everyday grind of life. And so in Ecclesiastes 1, we have perspective on life in this world without God, under the sun. In Ezekiel, God comes with a promise of something better. Ezekiel 36, he promised his people that he would come and said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God was looking ahead to a time when this was his purpose for his people, when he would do a new thing with a new heart and a new spirit that would be put into his people as his spirit was put into them. And as Devin mentioned, today is Epiphany, 
when we mark the, the revelation, the appearing, the manifestation of Christ to the nations. And in John chapter one, we're told that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. To him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. See, Jesus is the new covenant that Ezekiel looked ahead to. Jesus is the new work of God. Jesus breaks that cycle of meaninglessness, and this is something new. And so when the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, see something of which it is said, see this is new, it has been already, it was done before us. Jesus' incarnation broke in to history. God took on flesh and lived among us as a man. And we read in Romans 5 that Jesus came as the new Adam. The first Adam brought sin and condemnation, and the only world we know is life in light of that first Adam. Everything under the sun has been impacted by human sin and brokenness. And it's true that apart from God, this world is a continuous, unending set of seemingly unbreaking cycles that make life a vapor. But God himself broke into the cycle and did something new. Through Jesus Christ, the new Adam, God conquered sin and death and promised to make all things new. And so this is what we can cling to today. The only way for us to break out of the cycles and unending cycles of our lives is for somebody to break in and break them for us at times. Now that might sound foolish, it might sound unreasonable, it certainly is outside the scope of Ecclesiastes that somebody could break in when he says nothing is new. But through Jesus, the promise of the prophet Ezekiel has come to its fruition and God has done a new thing. We're free from the empty pursuits. We can look at the emptiness of the world around us and and, and with a new heart and a new spirit say, okay, So everything's meaningless. Jesus is the rock that I can cling to. He gives me purpose. All right, so our work is empty. Well, the work that Jesus did on the cross for me frees me to unending rest. Life is unendingly unsatisfying. We will never fill up to a point of satisfaction, we will be hungry again, but Jesus did the work, but Jesus fills and satisfies our hunger and the thirst of our souls. You know what? In all likelihood, every one of us here will die and be forgotten. Jesus promises us a share of his glory and his inheritance forever. And knowledge only increases sorrow. But Jesus makes it so that we are fully known by God and gives us eternal joy. So this chapter one is kind of a summary for the book of Ecclesiastes. 
This preacher will lead us through more specific pursuits as we move, make our way along. We'll talk about pursuit of religion. We'll talk about self-indulgence in work. We'll talk about money and, and wealth. We'll talk about all kinds of different areas that we can pursue in our lives. And, and as we do, he'll show us the reality of life as we see the, the world around us. Ecclesiastes is a profound book for the fact that over thousands of years it describes humanity and human experience clearly and accurately. And as we walk through this series, if you stick with it, there will be times when you find his honesty abrasive and discouraging. But for all of the cheeriness of Ecclesiastes, it lays a foundation for what's to come as we walk through the book. Everything under the sun is vanity, a mist, a vapor in the eyes of the preacher. And that's how life can often feel if we're honest about our experience. Our hope is that God broke into human history and the person Jesus Christ and something new happened and through him all things are being made new. And so the hope we have is to cling to something solid. That the glory of humanity, as Isaiah says, is like the flowers of the field and the grass. It withers and fades away, but it's the word of the Lord that stands forever. If we turn to Christ and trust ourselves to him in belief and repentance, we will find forgiveness and hope and satisfaction and ultimately we'll find meaning and purpose in our lives. And so this is my hope through Ecclesiastes, is that it wouldn't just be an individual pursuit, that it wouldn't, it wouldn't just be a nice, interesting study for us, but my hope is that as we walk through this, that you will be infused with a sense of purpose and meaning that God has made you for his glory, that he sees you and knows you, and that there's something important that he is doing in you and through you. And God's word, which stands forever... We read in Revelation 21 that Jesus, seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Father, we are... It's it's hard to look around at the world around us and the things that we pursue and the things that we spend so much time in our lives investing in and chasing and trying to accomplish and... And then look at the stark reality that it comes up like a vapor, that it's hard to find that meaning and purpose. I pray that today you would show us that the hope and purpose we have is found in you, that we can't find it under the sun, that we can't find it in the things that are in front of us here and now, that we'll pursue them and they'll come up empty over and over again, but that you are the one, our creator, who has made us in your image and likeness and that we'll find our purpose and meaning and satisfaction in you and that comes to us through Jesus. And so we ask that you would form us into the image of your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.